Snap Studios. Snappers, I've mentioned here before that one of my favorite things to do in all the world is to play hoops against my boy. Which is a fool's errand because it's 6'4", slim, muscular, a teenager. He's a peak physical specimen. When I try to shoot, he leaps into the sky, knocks it out of the air. I attempt to dribble past. His hand darts in with lightning speed, snatches away the ball. My fadeaways, my spins, my hooks. I'm throwing every tool from the arsenal and he just laughs. Get that trash out of here! <laughs> so, instead of trying things I can't do anymore, I cheat. I stiff arm on the way to the basket. I yank his shorts down and head for the hoop. I take 15 steps without dribbling the ball. Sucker! And when he has the unmitigated gall to dare me, dare me to shoot the ball for way beyond the three-point line, I do. And sometimes, snappers, every once in a while, it goes in. Most of the time it doesn't. (laughs) Sure. But what he doesn't get is I don't have to score the most points. Because playing him on this court, see, I've already won. To Dan Snap Judgment, we proudly present Bodies in Motion. My name is from Washington, and yes, that is the roar of the crowd when you're listening to Snap Judgment. We're going to begin today's Snap Judgment episode with Sophie Cohn. Sophie, who displayed an amazing talent very early, but what do you do when your childhood passion begins to evolve? Well, let Sophie... Take it from here. Snap judgment. So I'm standing outside the National Ballet of Canada, and I'm nervous. I'm nervous because it's been a really long time. But inside of that nervousness, there's a lot of sort of familiarity, too. There's sort of like a grace that everybody walks around with, the way they carry themselves. And you sort of become a different person from when you walk in off the street. It's just a very different energy. So I'm now 35, and I haven't set foot in this environment in so long. I haven't allowed myself to even think about it. I had a very complicated relationship with dance at that point, and I had a complicated relationship with my body. So when I was about four or five, I was a really shy kid. I was a really anxious kid. And I think my mom was sort of like looking for outlets for me to bring me out of my shell a little bit. So she found this music and movement class. And it was this class run by this really lovely South African woman, Carol. And she would turn on different songs that were meant to draw out different feelings. So there was like the angry song, and there was the sad song, and there was a happy song. And she would say, okay, just whatever's in your body, whatever whatever wants to come out, let it out. And so 
she would turn on like the sad song and we would sort of become like these writhing, moping kind of weird creatures. And then she would change it to the happy song and some people would turn into popcorn bouncing around. And she would turn on the angry song and we would all kind of stomp around like giants like smashing and imaginary plates on the floor. In Carol's class I sort of discovered almost like an alter ego. I could sort of channel that energy into these like magnificent creatures that I invented and the ways that they moved around the room. I wanted to be watched, I wanted to be noticed, I wanted an audience, I wanted Carol to see what I was doing. But the minute class ended, I was, I was just really shy. The first time that I decided that I could be a dancer and that I wanted to be a dancer, I was pretty young and I think I had gone to a ballet. As I got into elementary school, I was like, oh, there are people that do this and that's their life. They don't have to go to work, they don't have to go to school, like they just do this, they just dance. And I began a journey into a very, very disciplined world. I started in that world when I was about eight. In Carol's class, it was all about like spanning ground and taking up as much space as you can. And then you get to ballet school and by contrast, one of the first things that I learned how to do there was to stand completely still on my toes balancing. So often this would come in the context of a pirouette, which is a spin, basically. You spin around on one leg, and when the spin stops, you have to stand there on one leg, and your arms are up in the air in fifth position, and you have to just hold it, and you have to freeze, and you have to just stay there balanced, not moving, not smiling, not teetering, not tipping, just like finding your strength and hovering there with confidence and with calm. So I was about 12 years old and I was in a stretch class at my ballet school and I was sitting in this position called frog's legs, which is where you sit on the floor and you put the soles of your feet together in front of you. And my regular instructor was away that day, so we had a substitute. And she came up behind me and she put her hands on my back and she said, something's wrong with you, what's wrong with you? And this is like a room of 12-year-old kids, like so all their heads snap up and I can feel everybody's eyes burrowing into me and I can feel everybody lose their focus and now I'm the focus. It made me feel so scared. And I remember just like keeping my head down in the stretch and I can feel like my back of my neck getting really hot and my ears getting hot and I couldn't lift up my face to look at her or to look at anybody else in the room. But it was the first time that I think it snapped me out of this fantasy that like, oh, I can have this thing wrong with me that only I know about and nobody talks about it and nobody asks about it. I started experiencing some pain around 11 and we had gone to my pediatrician for like a routine checkup and she had sort of casually like offhand comments sort of said like, oh yeah, like you've got a bit of a, a curve going on. And so I remember being in my phys ed class at school when I was about 12 and changing into a bathing suit and looking in the mirror and being a little bit stunned because it was worse than I had realized, like it was worse than I thought. And then I had this sense of dread. I was like, is this like getting worse? And is this going to get worse? 
I knew something was wrong with me. I had seen that my back was contorting into like a really kind of grotesque shape and my rib cage was starting to twist around so that my torso was like physically facing the wrong way. Like I was facing the side. And I knew that this was all starting to get worse because I had watched it get worse. It sort of got to the point where like you could even sort of tell through my regular clothes, like that's how bad it got, that my spine was really twisted around. And there were kids at school who called me Quasimodo because I developed this like twisted body that made me walk kind of weird and also made me look kind of weird. People would actually just start to just outright ask, like, what's wrong with you? Why do you look like that? I remember being at a dance camp and there was like a judging panel. And I remember they stopped me like mid-dance to ask if I was aware of my own back. And I was so stunned by that question. Like, of course I know. The thing with ballet is that it's such a narrow imagination of what a person should look like and how a person should move. There isn't a lot of room to be different in any way. And I think, especially as my deformity got worse and worse, and I became more and more obviously physically disabled, I think that felt a little bit suffocating at times. It was kind of this like slow crescendo into crisis. And by the time I was 13, I had two 90 degree curves in my spine, which meant that my ribs were twisting around my body and compressing my lungs to the point that like walking upstairs left me winded. I was in excruciating pain. I took a lot of hot baths, I lay down a lot, but in the end, the disorder was just too aggressive and it was moving too fast. As a 13-year-old, I was obviously aware of what was going on. I had the sense that everybody was having like increasingly urgent conversations about me, like all these adults talking about me in like hushed tones, but I didn't know why. And then we went to this one appointment the surgeon sat me down and my mom was in the room. You could just kind of tell like he didn't want to have to deliver this news, but he was like, I think you need to have an operation to try to fix your spine and to try to correct the curve. It's a massive operation. It's very risky. And it will dramatically change what your life looks like on the other side. He said high impact activities are off the table. I was too scared to ask. I was too scared to say what I needed to say. My mom was very aware of that. So she just said, Sophie's a dancer. He took off his glasses and kind of just like looked at the floor and you could tell he was kind of collecting his answer. And he just kind of smiled and he was like, yeah, that's not likely. I don't really think I did accept the fact that I was not going to be a dancer. And I was sort of in a mindset of like, well, maybe I'll prove him wrong. (laughs) The surgery was on like a Monday or Tuesday. And the advice we had been given from the nurses and the surgeons was, you really need this weekend to just rest and just take it easy on the couch. So, of course, 
the Saturday before I went to a dance class. <laughs> I, did, I did anything but take it easy. And my mom knew how important that was for me, and I think my mom knew that it would be the last time. And so she knew that that was sort of really important for me to have that closure. So she let me go to the class, and I spent all Saturday afternoon in my regular class with my friends and my teacher dancing in so much physical and emotional pain. It was, it was just unbearable. I wanted to be there, but I also, it was killing me to be there in pretty much every way. And my ballet instructor knew what was going on, obviously, and I remember at the end of that class, like, I was so exhausted and so, I have so much pain, and I was just like about to have a nervous breakdown from fear about what was coming. And she just knew all of that without saying anything, and she just pulled me into this hug, and I just like sobbed in her arms for like a long time. This surgery is a big deal. They basically dismantle your whole torso. They took out the bones from my ribs to kind of fuse my vertebrae together in a straight line. And then they take metal rods and they put them on either side of your spine and then they fuse the metal to your spine and then they put in all kinds of like bolts and screws and nuts to keep it all in place. And then of course when they've taken out your ribs like that, you're very vulnerable and it's very hard to breathe without excruciating pain. So they give you a drug to paralyze you for a while and then they put you on a ventilator on a breathing machine. So I woke up in the ICU, paralyzed, and I had no limbs. My whole body was like shrieking in pain, but I couldn't move. I was just flat on my back. I had this huge plastic tube running down my throat and the machine was breathing for me. Your mind is really hazy too because you're on like 17 different drugs and like, you don't get any sleep, so you're just like floating in this weird lake of just like pain and terror and exhaustion and you can't find yourself. You don't know where you are. I did eventually get out of the ICU and it was like waking up in someone else's body. I had to relearn how to stand up. I had to relearn how to walk because my whole body was radically different. My spine was in a different position. My hips were in a different position. Like, your whole center of gravity changes. So I didn't know how to walk. I didn't know how to stand up. I didn't know how to sit down in a chair. When I was discharged from the hospital and I was recouping at home, for like months and months and months, I had to just rest at home. And you know, like a Saturday would roll around or a Tuesday would roll around. It would start to feel weird that I wasn't getting ready for class. It would start to feel kind of empty. And I was also hearing a lot from my friends who were from dance school. And they would come by to, to visit with me for short periods that I could manage. But so, you know, they would sit on the edge of my bed and talk about like what was happening at dance school. And like their whole life was dance school. And I, I did start to feel like that world was moving on without me. It was hitting me that like I wasn't going to be able to go back. And that just threw my whole identity into question. I didn't know what to do with that emptiness. The way that I sort of coped with that, I think, was to just kind of avoid any interaction with that world and cut that part of myself out. I just had to shut it off. It was just too painful. 
So now I'm, you know, in my 30s and I'm just at work and I had overheard a couple of women in the bathroom saying that they were taking this adult ballet class at the National Ballet. They had just discovered that the National Ballet offers classes for adults who have no real dance training and no real experience, but who have, you know, maybe always wanted to try ballet. It's been like decades since I have been in a class. And immediately I'm like, no, no, that's my world, that's mine. <laughs> and I just felt like this surge of possessiveness almost. Kind of like they didn't really have a right to like take that class, which obviously they do. But I kind of felt like I'm the person that should be taking that class. You guys don't even know what you're doing. I went back to my desk and I went to the National Ballet website and I looked at their schedule and there was this adult ballet class on Tuesday nights. It was kind of like my body just took over and was like, guess what, we're signing up for this class. And then it wasn't until I got like the email confirmation about it, like five minutes later, that I was like, wait, what did I just do and why? It was like waking up from a dream almost, but I was signed up. I had very meticulously packed my ballet shoes that I dug out of my mom's basement and like leotard and tights. I remember being in the locker room and just like feeling anxious about like, okay, like how am I going to respond to this kind of question or that kind of comment or what am I going to say? And, you know, there's part of me that's like, do I owe anybody an explanation? When I walked into the room and I was wearing the leotard, I was wearing the tights, I was wearing the ballet shoes, my hair was in a bun. That was the part of the class where I enjoyed, for the first time in so long, possibly ever, I just enjoyed the feeling of looking normal. I mean, I have a huge scar down my back, but that was covered by my clothes. So... I remember just walking across this like big gray vinyl floor and I didn't feel anybody staring. It was just unremarkable, like nobody noticed me and that's exactly what I wanted. And then I walked to the bar and we started a series of bar exercises. That nice feeling of normalcy started to, <laughs> to really get unraveled because then we started doing back bends and we started bending in ways that I can't physically do anymore. And then that familiar feeling of just like being the focus of attention in a really unwanted way. And I could feel the kind of silent questions like, why isn't she doing that back bend? Why is she just waiting this one out? And like, I can remember how that felt in my body, but I can't, I can't do it now. And I can't get into that position anymore. And then there's sort of the awkwardness of just like, oh, I'm just going to wait this exercise out. I'm going to just like, try to look casual here while everybody else does it and like you know you think you're 35 and you're sort of beyond all this sort of middle school politics <laughs> but it's really vulnerable by the end of the class I was physically very exhausted but also emotionally really exhausted I sort of resolved to find aspects of the class that you know, felt joyful and try to remember why I was there in the first place to revive this thing that had brought me so much joy for so long. I've sort of come to a place where I understand my relationship with dance. And it's not the relationship I set out to have, but now it has ended up somewhere, somewhere else, somewhere I could have never predicted. 
when I was in ballet school, I was probably like 13 or something, there was a woman who would come to our class fairly often, and she was probably like in her 30s, maybe 40s, and she was just taking ballet for fun. And she was obviously past the point in life where she could start ballet classes with the aim of having a career, but I was fascinated by her and kind of threatened by her in a way because I felt kind of an embarrassment when I first kind of encountered her. I was like, who is this like old octogenarian who's like just shown up in her class and like, what does she think she's doing here? But she just loved to dance and she wasn't doing it to be watched. She wasn't doing it to be looked at or admired. She wasn't working towards any exams or anything like that the way that we were. And she didn't like abide by all the conventions and all the culture that had been so ingrained in all of us. I couldn't really conceive of a world in which you would dance just for fun. Like you had nothing to work towards. It was just because it felt good and it made you happy. We made fun of this woman a lot. You know, we were teenagers, we were kind of jerks. And I think about her now because I kind of feel like my only option at this point is to become that woman, to become this person that I was so horrified by and so afraid of. But she just loved to dance and she just wanted to move her body in this beautiful, joyful way. And I think wherever she is, I hope that she's still dancing. Huge, huge thank you to Sophie Cohn for sharing her story with the Snap. Sophie is a writer and producer with CBC Comedy. And Sophie, we do hope you keep on dancing like nobody's watching. This piece was based on our essay, Body in Motion, which was originally published at hazlet.net. We'll have a link at snapjudgment.org. And special thanks to David Exime for his help with this story. The original score for this piece was by Dirk Schwartzhoff was produced by Bo Walsh. After the break, come with me to Niagara Falls. Snap Judgment. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue and guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Welcome back to Snap Judgment. In fact, welcome back to Snap Judgment Live. We've saved you the very best seat in the house. I've got a story of my own. So, I'm 16 years old, and... I'm standing at the edge of the Niagara Falls. 
hoping this roar of water will drown out my father's lecture. But Pops is in rare form. Boy, you're hard-headed. You gotta learn from God's authority. So we're at this church festival, and he knows as well as I do that they, there are not enough deacons and apostles and ministers to watch all of these young people. They can't do it. He knows this. Boy, you listening to me? Yes, sir. Don't be talking to none of them girls, neither. What do you think I'm there for? I got my target locked. Becca. Fine! She's from upstate New York. I say, hey, Becca, let me show you around. Knowing good and well, I'd never been there before. Take it to get some of that Niagara Falls fudge. We go to the Ripley's, believe it or not. And it's in front of the Wax Museum, Waxy Dolly Parton, that I reach out my hand and she holds it, squeezes it. And I know the good Lord loves me. And I don't even like haunted houses, but we go in the haunted house because I just want to hold her hand. And it's right past the, the Frankenstein's monster, past the dark bin, when she tells me that she wants to tell me a secret. I've been down and we kiss for like 30 seconds or two hours. And I don't know, but walk out into the sunshine and see her mother and she's screaming and shouting. There's spittle coming out of her mouth. She says that I'm a seducer, that I'm evil, that it's evil for one race to fraternize with another. This is an outrage. And she grabs Becca's hand, shoves her into a car, and they pull off. Because, yeah, there's a rule against that in my church. And I'm invisible no more. Everybody's on the street. You should have seen what happened. You should have seen it. You should have seen it. The next day, I'm sitting in my parents' station wagon, and a girl who is not Becca comes and gives me a note. You know who this is from. She walks away, and I smell it, and it smells like she does, and I, I can't open it. I can't open it. I open it, and in this flowing cursive script, she said everything that I want to hear, that she's so sorry for what happened, but that we're almost old enough to do whatever we want to do, that we don't have to follow anybody's rules, that we can write to each other, we can keep in touch, and we can be together forever. She asked me to write every day. And I do. For a while. Then I write every week. Then every month. And one evening, I get a phone call. And it's her, it's Becca, and she sounds 
small and she sounds scared. And she says that she just can't take it anymore, that it's just too much, that she has to get away. And she says, uh, can I come stay with you? And having her at our house is against the imagining of my community. No way is this going to happen. But I have to help her. Hold on for a minute. And I start this long march upstairs to my parents' room knowing that any moment this volcano is about to blow. I knock on the door. My father is sitting there at his desk reading the Bible. I decide to just say it. Pops, I have a girlfriend on the other side of the country. She's in some trouble. She wants to come here. She might be in a church. I think she's white. Is that all right? Where is she? She's in Buffalo, the Greyhound station. He reaches over and hands me his wallet. My credit card's in there. Get a ticket here. And I wonder who this person is. Anything else? No, get out. Yes, sir. <laughs> and a day later, I pull up our freshly washed station wagon up to the Greyhound station. And I see the bus pull in, and she's, she looks tired until we lock eyes. And she looks beautiful again. And she rushes out, and she gives me a huge hug, and she says, I knew it. I knew we were always going to be together. I knew it. I get her luggage, and she says, you might be in some trouble. Word? Yeah. Um, my mother found some of our letters. Uh-huh. She told the cops that I'd been kidnapped by Negroes. She didn't say Negroes. And we laughed even though it's not funny. And then I take her back to our place and she meets my mother, my brother, my father. My sister says, oh, you're so pretty. And I can see her relax when she says it. But she hasn't relaxed in a long, long time. And I just want to keep her safe. And we're eating dinner as a family. And there's a knock on the door. My father gets up to get it. It's our pastor. He's tying his tie. He's slicking back his kind of blonde, grayish hair. Bill, Bill, I understand we've got a problem here. We've got a big problem. I just want to make sure you're going to be in the church tomorrow. We all going to be up in the church. And the next day, we all are. Dead center. Me in the middle, 
with Becca next to me. The pastor comes up and he gives a sermon on the sins of the wrong kind of person being with the wrong kind of person at the wrong kind of time. And I've never hated this person before. Never hated this pastor, but I hate him now. And after church, my father tells me that the ministers want to meet in the back. Of course they do. Go back there and the pastor's sitting there, two minions on either side. And it gets right to the point. Bill, we've decided that this girl is going to go to the home of a white family. Deacon Vanderjack will make all the arrangements. And I get up to protest. My father puts his hand on my shoulder. As this young lady has requested to stay in our home, she will remain welcome until such time as she sees fit to leave. Are you questioning my authority in the Lord Jesus Christ? If the shoe fits, we're leaving now. All right then, we're leaving. Pops, you know, um, you know we kicked out that church. You know you kicked out the church. That church we dedicated our lives to. Boy, what I always tell you, to do what the pastor said to do, to do what Jesus said to do. And Jesus always listened to his father. So you listen to your father. Never, ever make a young girl believe you are going to do something you are not going to do. I can't even look at him in the eye. And the next day, Rebecca asked me if I love her. I tell her the truth. I don't know. And we both cry when I say it. Next day, she says that she wants to go stay with her sister. And I can't believe it's not the church, the parents, the forces that be that are keeping us apart. It's me. The Greyhound bus, it pulls off and she does not even look back and I sit there wishing, hoping to believe in something, to believe in anything enough to make this it's pain. Somebody else's fault. Snap judgment. Live. See this in all its technical glory. More stories waiting for you than can shake a stick at. Check it out, stepjudgment.org. See? See, stories are life. The more stories you have, the better off you are. The kinder, the sexier, the more thoughtful, the better you can dance, and what's more, you can cook paella. 
You've never heard of Paella. It doesn't matter. Just get the Snap Judgment podcast. Snap Judgment, available wherever you get your podcast. Snap's on Twitter, on Instagram, on Facebook. Snap is brought to you by the team that always dances like nobody's watching. Except for the Uber producer, Mr. Mark Ristich. He only dances like there's a spotlight on just him, and it's his show and his world. You know, there's Nancy Lopez, Pat Mancini Miller, Anna Sussman, Renzo Gorio, John Facile, Shayna Sheely, Tao DeCott, Marissa Dodge, Bo Walsh, Flo Wiley, David Exmay, and Regina Bediaco. And this is not the news. No way is this news. In fact, you could go on American Idol. You could win every single round. And right before singing, before Simon Cowell and the crew, you could decide. You don't care what they think. You're only doing this for yourself. You're not here to be judged by the likes of them. And you walk away into the sunset, head held high. And you would still, right then, still not be as far away from the news as this is. But this is PR.